0: Well, we are continuing our series that we're calling Unafraid. I love it, Unafraid. That's code for courage and being courageous. So those of you that have been with us the last few weeks, this is week five of our Unafraid series, know that what we've been kind of doing is looking at specific individuals and characters in Scripture who at kind of the beginning often of their stories, you see fear. You see intimidation. And we can relate to that, can't we? And yet God steps in and has done some remarkable things through these men and women in scripture who really are examples to us of how to live courageously through his strength and his power. We talked about Moses. Remember, Moses had fled Egypt for his life. He got to be a shepherd for 40 years. And then God at that burning bush called him back to deliver his people from Egypt. He was terrified, but then God worked a mighty work through him. You remember the 12 uh, spies that were sent into the land of Canaan? Kind of a mixed report because 10 came back and said, These giant Nephilim are just almost superhuman, and they were terrified, yet Joshua and Caleb said, Our God can give us victory. We saw their courage. We've seen the apostles and the disciples who Shared Christ, their lives were threatened. They prayed for boldness, though, and God allowed them to speak the gospel, and thousands upon thousands of people were saved. So, the pattern that we see in Scripture is humanly in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own emotions, often there are situations in life that terrify us. And yet, we've been given the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are children of God. Amen. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and ambassadors for Jesus Christ need to be bold. Yes, loving, but bold for the name of Christ. So what's so important, I think, in this Unafraid series is that we really get a deeper understanding of what biblical courage truly is. You know, courage is something that is really celebrated in our world. It's celebrated in our country. Some of our, many of our national holidays are centered upon people who were incredibly courageous, right? Think about it. We give medals to people, medals of courage to people. We erect monuments to people who have demonstrated incredible courage. So we value courage. But my question to you this morning, to myself, is do we live more in fear than courage? You know, if we were to draw a continuum from one side to the other this is great fear, this is great courage, where would you land on the continuum as you think of your life? And you say, well, that kind of depends on the situation, that kind of thing. No, it's the pattern of your life. And this morning when we talk about courage, we're talking about standing for the name of Jesus Christ, even in a situation where it's not popular. Because as we've been studying what God's word says about courage, It often means stepping into places and being bold, not harsh or mean, but being bold with the name of Jesus Christ. Are you zealous for his name? Are you courageous to step into some of those places? Am I courageous to step in some of those places and be bold for him? Well, we're going to see a young man who did that amazingly. In fact, the passage, the chapter that we're looking at today, probably is in the top two or three of the most famous, popular chapters in all of the Word of God. It's about a shepherd boy who defeats a Philistine giant. Most people call this the David and Goliath story. But I want to share with you a perspective, obviously I think it's more biblical, I want to share with you a perspective that it's really the David and King Saul story. Really. Goliath was not so much the enemy as he was the test. The test of godly courage versus fear. First Samuel 17. If you have your Bible, let's go there. If you would, please. We'll have... Uh, all these verses will be up on the screen as well, but that's our chapter for this morning. Now, I need to give context, as I like to teach, and kind of I both do, it's like we want to make sure you know that we're not just jumping into something without making sure you know it's in context, and we're trying to uh, make sure that we don't take things out of context in God's word. That's not a good thing to do. Chapter 16 of the book of 1 Samuel is about the anointing of David as king. That's what happens. Now, many of you know that story. You know that Samuel the prophet was sent to the house of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. David was the youngest. Some would say the baby. Any of you that are youngest, don't you just love, you know, you're 40 years old, you're still the baby, right? I'm sure you love it. I'm a middle child, I have my own issues, okay? But some of you know you're the baby, you're the kid, you're the whatever. And uh, that's who David was. And those of you who know the story know that David was the one who was anointed to be the next king because Saul, who was the original king of Israel, who the people begged to be their king, had so disobeyed God that God took the kingdom away from him and anointed David. The thing is that David would not actually take the throne for between 12 and 15 years after that anointing. And a whole lot of things happened during those 15 years. So we're going to go ahead and pick up uh, in verse 16 first, verses 13 and 14, because I want you to see, this has a lot to do with chapter 17. I want you to see what happens as a result of this anointing of David. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 13 and 14, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. It's really important that we understand at the beginning of this passage that the Spirit of God was on David, okay? We're not just gonna see an awesome courageous young man, probably somewhere in the range of 15 years old, but that God's spirit was upon him as well. Okay. Now we're going to pick up in verse one for Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesimim between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and they camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites the other, with the valley in between them. Now, as this passage goes on, some of you know that it describes Goliath. Goliath, by the way, was nine feet nine inches tall. That's what it says. You know, I thought about that. I thought he could go like this and touch the rim with his head. That's a basketball rim, you know what I mean by rim. He could pretty much do that. Nine feet, nine inches tall. His suit of armor that he wore weighed 125 pounds. And he had a shaft, a spear. The tip of that spear was iron, and it weighed 15 pounds. He was massive, he was uh, intimidating. He was more than huge, and he was the champion of the Philistines. That's what we read. He was quite the trash talker as well. I'll just say that. Look at verse 8 with me. Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and, you, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, though this highly common, we could call it winner-take-all kind of battle, it was, not, it was not common necessarily, but it did happen in the Near East. Here's what one commentator wrote. He said, commanders of opposing armies in the ancient Near East would occasionally avoid engaging all of their forces. Instead, each would select his best fighter to engage in a death match with the best fighter of the other army, winner Take all. Well, yeah, you got a do- Goliath. You know that's probably a good choice to try to make this happen. But did Israel have a champion? Israel actually did have a champion. His name was King Saul. And if you look, I'm, I'm going to have this on the screen. If if you look at First Samuel chapter ten, verse twenty three, you see something about King Saul. By the way. Some of you remember that God didn't want Israel to have an earthly king. And they kept begging him and begging him and begging him. And finally, Saul was selected. Here's what we read for Samuel 10.23. They ran and brought him out. And as he, it's referring to Saul here, stood among the people, he, Saul, was a head taller than any of the others. And he became their king. He was their champion. Who should have gone out and stood face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Goliath, Saul. And so what I want us to see in this chapter is this chapter is very much a contrast in terrified fear versus incredible courage, Saul and David. That's why I say Goliath is the test. That's what he was, okay? So let me keep going here. Um, I'm going to be giving you. I'm going to be giving you uh, several principles: three about godly fear or godless fear, fear, and three about courage. So let me give you my first fear principle, and that is: fear can intimidate and paralyze. And that's exactly what Saul does here. Fear can intimidate and paralyze. This is this is classic intimidation. You know, I thought as I was thinking a lot about this, I thought. Um, did the generals of Israel agree to this arrangement? (laughs) This was not common for Israel at all to have this champion fight off, winner take all. This was not common at all for Israel. And yet here's often what intimidation will do. Somebody will like, boom, drop the hammer and you are so paralyzed by it, you are so intimidated by it that you freeze. I think that's exactly what happened here. I mean, this was not a good strategy for the Israelite army to go along with this. But that's what happens when you're intimidated. Have you been intimidated recently? <laughs> Have you had fear just completely overtake you emotionally? The question is, what do we do when that happens? What do we do? Do we, do we start planning? Do we start crying? Do we... Th- What do we do? How about talk to Jesus? Isn't that a thought? Isn't that a good thought? Talk to Jesus. When I step into something or more often am blindsided by something that brings fear in my life, do I talk to Jesus about it? That's where I need to go. Not freak out. Talk to Jesus about it. That's where you and I need to go. When you have a child and either there's some horrendous health news about your child or when your child is acting out in really hateful ways or sinful ways, do you freeze? Do you freak out? Or do you talk to Jesus about it first? When you're going through an incredible financial crisis in your life, you've lost a job or something else has happened, do you freeze and freak out? Or do you talk to Jesus first? I know our our knee-jerk, we can't always control our emotions, can we? But on the other hand, where do you go? Where do you go first? And... We, we don't see that in the Israelite army, and we certainly don't see it in King Saul. Well, we're going to fast forward. Jump down to verse 12 with me, because we are kind of forwarded, fast flash forwarded to a different scene at David's home. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul into the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening, and he took his stand. I want to give you my second fear principle. Fear can become normalized. Fear can become normalized. In fact, fear can become one's identity. It happens a lot. It can can become normalized. Did you see verse 16? This so struck me when I studied this. Forty days, morning and evening, Goliath would come out. And do his trash talking. That's what it was. And his intimidation. Two times 40 equals 80 times. These guys heard this. 80 times. That is amazing marketing strategy, isn't it? Kind of is. But more than that, it just began to normalize their fear. That's what happened. 80 times. And all they did is... Run. All they did was become paralyzed. And among, amongst the Israelite army, who knows, maybe in the further back ranks of the army, was their king, whom they had chosen, who was a coward, because he was supposedly the champion of Israel. That's what's going on, okay? Fear can become normalized. It can become a person's normal. It can become a family's normal, where kind of the, the, the family culture is one that is extremely fearful and very, very paranoid. That's sad. That's sad when that happens for Christians. Let's pick up in verse 21. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. Dave left, David left his things with the keeper of the supplies ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Here's my third fear principle for you. Fear can deceive and delude the majority. Fear can deceive and delude the majority. Did you see that it says they all fled with great fear? Right thing to do is to run and scream. (laughs) Right thing to do is just be totally intimidated by Goliath. That's the right thing to do. That's, you know, I mean, that's kind of logical. The dude is like huge. You know, I was thinking about this, about, Fear can deceive and delude the majority. And and not that I'm a huge student of history, but I enjoy history and looking at different periods of time, both in our country and in other parts of the world. But I'll tell you what came to my my mind. The Holocaust in Germany. The murder of six million Jews in a country where either people were so numbed and desensitized to what was going on or out of fear completely submitted to it that horrendous things happened. My friends, that can happen when the majority opinion takes over. That can often happen, especially for those of us who are believers, who are citizens of what first? We're citizens of heaven first. We're citizens of heaven first. The majority can create almost a mob mentality. We've seen it. I don't need to get specific. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We see it. We see it in our world. We see it in our country. And it's often just fueled by fear. Okay, let's keep going on with David because David now becomes the central figure of this, this account. Verse 25, Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, what would be done for the man who kills a Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And then this is, David is so amazing. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Wow, don't you love it? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy our army of our God? <laughs> you know, every good story needs a little family drama, right? I mean, we just, we just need a little family drama. There's family drama in this story. Did you see this? Verse 28. Now, Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger against David and he said, why have you come down here? And with whom do you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Don't you love older brothers? Older siblings are the best. Now, what have I done? David says. What have I done? Can I even speak? And I love this part. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. Didn't listen to his brother. And the men answered him as before. When David said, when what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him, David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. <laughs> nobody else going to do it? I'll do it. This almost feels a little matter-of-fact to me. This is kind of like, um, nobody else is doing this? I'll do it. I'll go with it. Okay, let me give you my next principle. This is now a courage principle. principle or here's the principle. Courage often stands alone. Courage for God's honor and glory often stands alone. David's words, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. This is so awesome. It's like David is saying, you know, I'll do it. Someone has to do this. I'll do it. We don't have a choice here. This is our duty. This is our calling. This is our privilege. This is our honor. This is our stewardship to celebrate and to take a stand for the name and glory of our God. This is not optional. That's what we see in David's heart. It's so pure. There's this pure zeal and love for God. It's so beautiful to me. It's like it hasn't been tainted yet. It's as though, you know... He hasn't become numb and he hasn't become uh, uh, cynical about, well, there's right things to do. There's right times to talk and there's not right th- times to talk. It's like, no, he's offending our God. He's offending his name. We're doing something about this. And if nobody else is, I'll do it. And that's what we see. And that's so beautiful in him because nobody else in Israel in the army was doing it, especially King Saul. Here's what David goes on to say to Saul. He goes, verse 36, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Then go, go. Lord be with you. Kind of glad it's you and not me. That's kind of what I read into this. Lord be with you. Here's the thing about David that is so amazing in this chapter. None of this courage is about himself. It is not about himself. It is about defending the name and glory of God. That's what drives him. It's so beautiful. I want you to remember that David... Uh, was a shepherd. Some of us know this. You know what that probably means? It does mean he spent a whole lot of time with him, his sheep and the Lord. <laughs> I mean, there's pictures we have of him being or shepherds being on a mountainside as the sun is setting, as the stars in the sky are just beautiful and millions upon millions of them. And David, being the poet and the songwriter he was, would write words like the heavens declare the glory of God. And David's whole heart and spirit was nurtured on the power and glory of God. That was so deep in his soul that when anybody would dare to defile the glory of his God, he had to do something about it. Oh, may God give me more of that heart. May God give all of us more of that heart. We see that in him. And that's one of the beautiful reasons why David was selected to be the king of Israel. Because even at that early age, God was nurturing this heart after God that David had. Called a man after God's own heart. That's what we see in him. And it's so amazing and so beautiful. David goes on to talk about how God has given me this opportunity to take care of my sheep. And God, I would like to take the opportunity to take care of his name, Saul, let me do this, and his army and his people. So that's my second. I want to share with you my second courage principle, and that is courage is fueled by a close walk with God. I believe that so deeply. Courage is fueled by a close walk with God. That's what David had. David had this untarnished, pure, non-cynical heart for God. Sometimes we call that, oh, that's naive, or we call that, you know, you haven't experienced much of life yet, whatever. But isn't it beautiful? His heart has not been tainted. He just—he hears the name of God offended, and he's got to do something about it. He's compelled to do something about it. That is so beautiful, and we see it in him. And I think that's because he walked with God so closely. To the degree that I, it made me wonder as I studied this, it made me wonder, is some of my fear and some of my intimidation a result of my walk not being where it needs to be with Jesus? who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, who has promised to care for me. I think that can be true of all of us. So as you know, those of you that know the story, David tries to put on <laughs> Saul's armor. You know, Saul might have been a foot or two bigger than David. Who knows, you know, and and it's like, no thanks. I'm not going to do your armor, Saul. And uh, so he goes... Runs out to the battle line where Goliath is, verse 43. He, Goliath, said to David, Am I a dog (laughs) that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Like that's the best trash talking I have ever heard in my life. That is just so incredible because not word of it was, I am the greatest. Not an ounce of that in David, right? This is for the glory of God. And I was so challenged as I studied this to say, is everything I'm doing and the words that I say all about the glory of God, all about exalting the name of Jesus. And I have a long way to go. And we probably all do. But we see that beautiful heart of David. David even in his zealous challenge of Goliath. So here's my third courage principle. That is that courage ignites zeal for the glory of God. It ignites zeal for the glory of God. Okay, 49, here's the best part of the story. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine, and he killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword. He drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they didn't keep the bargain. (laughs) They turned and they ran. That's what they did. Zeal for the glory of God. Zeal for the glory of God. Is that us? Oh, I'm so challenged by that. Zeal for the glory of God. As the chapter closes, the last few verses, Saul asks his general, Abner, basically, who is this young man? Now, Saul had met David. David had even been temporarily part of Saul's court. To calm Saul down, he'd play the harp. But it's kind of like, as I read this, you know, who is this, who is this young man's family? Who is his father? That's what Saul is asking. And Abner says, I have no idea. It's like, where did this kid come from? <laughs> Who is he? We do that when somebody kind of blows our mind. It's like, who are you? Wow. And that's what we see in him. And it's not about David's incredible skill and ability and talent and charisma, it's about the Spirit of God on his life and David saying yes to being courageous for the name of God. That's what it's about, my friends. Are we zealous for the name and glory of Jesus Christ? I'll share something with you that is just so convicting to me, maybe convicting to many of us. I think many, many, many of us have a tendency to kind of surround ourselves, we call it fellowship and discipleship, with just believers. The vast majority of our life is insulated from relationships with non Christians. That, that's just true. Many of us kind of live that world the vast majority of our time is we're always with believers. And I think one of the things that can cause me and my heart to be numb to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and taking a stand for God's truth in a context where I am definitely the minority is because I'm not in those contexts very often. (laughs) I kind of avoid them. You know, it's kind of nice to just have this peaceful life, Lord, where I just hang out with people who believe exactly what I do. You know, Lord, it's kind of nice. Thank you for blessing me that I don't have to be around non-Christians. And he says, what? What? Don't you remember I said, go make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, teach them, I'm with you always. Don't you remember that great commission I gave right before I ascended back up into heaven with my father? No, you need to be with people who don't know me yet. And this is not a call to being harsh or mean-spirited at all, but my friends, it's a call to be bold for the glory of Jesus Christ in your life. And at times, my friends, to step into hard discussions and hard situations and say, you know, I don't agree. I don't agree. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's how I understand that issue. I think one of the great lies of our enemy, Satan, is to try to get us to believe that to speak speak truth is always a mean, harsh thing to do. Uh Uh-uh. No. No. And being courageous means that we speak truth and we value God's truth often above what somebody might think of me. Or whether or not they say you're a Christian. I thought Christians were supposed to be loving to everybody or whatever accusation might come your way. Have we become too comfortable, many, many, many of us, with 95% of the people in our life being people who believe what we do, who are followers of Christ? And we call that fellowship and discipleship. Nothing wrong with fellowship and discipleship, but there's all this other thing called evangelism and sharing your faith. Amen? There is. And we need to be intentional about going to places and being with people who desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be courageous. Yes, be loving, but be courageous and uncompromising in the truth. I've been very convicted of that this this week and a half or so as I've studied this passage because I see David, his heart just seemed to be so pure And zealous for God's glory. And I've been saying, Lord, make my heart more that way. I want to be so much more that way. I think it's so easy for us to become numb and passive. Maybe this morning you'll commit. I'm going to pray in a moment. You'll commit to, uh, Kondo mentioned this a week or two ago too, to include Jesus in some discussions you have with people don't, who don't know him. To just include Jesus. To just say his name. To just give him credit. Somebody says, you know, it's so awesome how you talk about your family. It's so awesome that you have, seem to have such great kids. It's so easy to say, oh, thank you. They are great kids. It's harder but better to say, um, we are far, far, far from perfect parents. But we're followers of Jesus, and he really helps us love and raise our kids. He really helps us do that. Those discussions don't need to be so scary, my friends, that they never happen. Step into them. Pray for them. When you say, Lord, would you this week, Lord, please, I'm praying that you would give me an opportunity to talk to somebody who doesn't know Jesus about him. Do you think God says, "Mm, not sure if I want to answer that one. (laughs) You know what he says? It's about time. It's about time, Jeff, you prayed that. I've been waiting for you to pray stuff like that. Because you are a light and you are salt in a dark world. And so, so are every single one of us who name the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example of this amazing young man who knew, who knew, who deserved all the glory and all the credit, and it wasn't himself. I am so challenged, Lord, by his zeal, by his passion, for your name, for your fame, for your glory. And Lord, I need so much more of that. My brothers and sisters here, we need so much more of that. We want you to use us. But, Lord, we know that that might mean we need to step into places that aren't familiar and are uncomfortable and might even be hard. But we trust you that as we do that, you will do something through us because your heart breaks for the lost And we want our hearts to break for the lost too. And we want our hearts to be passionate and on fire for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.